You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognise him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet, to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born, not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Thanks, Ariel. Uh, I'm going to pray. There's an outline of my sermon uh, on the uh, welcome card online. If you would like to look that up, if it's helpful for you to follow along, uh, it'd be great also to have the, a Bible passage open. But let's pray. Uh, gracious Father, we thank you for your word. And we ask that uh, in this moment, by the power of your word and spirit, that you would open our eyes uh, to see the wonderful grace that you have shown to us in Jesus, uh, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, at this uh, time of Christmas, uh, I wonder if you can remember what the best Christmas present you've ever received is. I mean, it's hard to, to rank them, but I, I kind of think back through your childhood even. Uh, what is the best Christmas gift you've ever received? Uh, personally, uh, as I was thinking about this during the week, uh, I thought back to my childhood, one particular Christmas, uh, where I received a model jet fighter plane. Uh, this was one of the, the kind of best gifts I've ever received. It was one of those plastic models. I don't know if you know the ones you, you buy at the, the hobby shop. It had the, the plastic pieces that you push out of the little frame and you've got to glue them together with the special modelling glue. Uh, so I remember spending a whole day, maybe even a couple of days, kind of gluing together all these different parts. Uh, and then I had to go down to the modelling shop and buy the special paint. So I remember it distinctly. It had a kind of base colour of white, this fighter jet, uh, with blue and red trim. Uh, and once all the paint had dried, uh, then I had the special jet fighter stickers, uh, which was just great fun, sticking all the stickers on, the special numbers and all of that. Uh, as you think back to your, your childhood, what would you say is the best Christmas gift you've ever received? Uh, in more recent years, I reckon one of the best gifts that I kind of ever receive uh, is a, a day a ticket to the Boxing Day test match. And not on Boxing Day, typically, usually a couple of days later. Uh, I think what I love, I mean, I, I love cricket in general, uh, but I, I do have a, a job uh, that is kind of people-heavy, like lots of time with people. Uh, and so I, what, I, what I love about going to the cricket all day for eight or ten hours is that I'm, even though I'm in the midst of kind of 60 or 70,000 people, sometimes more, I'm actually all by myself. And for the most part, no one bothers me. And I just sit there all day by my... It's just a glorious gift. I, I love going to the cricket. Uh, when I get home, Gabby has typically loved the day not so much, but I've had a great day. What is the best Christmas gift you've ever received? 
Uh, today, as we look at this next section of the first kind of 18 verses of John's Gospel, what's known as the prologue, uh, we're going to see that the best Christmas gift ever is God the Father revealing Jesus, his light to us, regenerating our hearts that love darkness, that we might revel in life as his children. Right? Three R's, hopefully you can remember them. God the Father revealing Jesus, his light to us, regenerating our hearts that love darkness, that we might revel in life as his children. I say God the Father there, uh, maybe that raises some questions and uh, you might remember that last week uh, in the very first sentence of his gospel, John introduced us to the wonderful reality of the Trinity, uh, the, the, the kind of idea that, that uh, Christians believe in, uh, that God exists as one God eternally existing in three persons, God the Father, God the Son and God the Spirit, all of them eternally in relationship with one another, loving one another, serving one another. Last week, our big question was focused on the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, who is Jesus. This week, in many ways, our big question is focused on the Father, the first person of the Trinity. What is God the Father doing through Jesus, his Son? What is God the Father doing through Jesus, his Son? And what we see first in these verses is that God the Father is revealing his light to the world through Jesus, his Son. That's what God the Father is doing. Take a look there in verse 5. Uh, in verse 5, we, we see that the light shines in the darkness. And now we know from verse 4 that the light there is Jesus. If you take a look back at verse 4, uh, you'll see in him, that is in the word, in Jesus is life, was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. So the light in verse 5 is clearly Jesus. Jesus is the light of the world uh, in the sense that he brings physical life to everyone and everything. Right, just, just as our sun brings life to everything on the planet, so also Jesus brings life. Jesus is the light of the world. He brings physical life to all people. Uh, but he's also the, the light of the world in the sense that he brings spiritual life to everyone who believes in him. You remember John's purpose in his gospel? Uh, have those verses, you know, John chapter 20, verse 31. John's purpose is he's written down his gospel that we might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, God's chosen and promised king, that, that Jesus is the son of God, the, the second person of the Trinity, the eternal son of God. And in believing that about Jesus, that we would find life in Jesus' name. Uh, clearly, that's not about physical life, because presumably John uh, is assuming that the people reading his gospel uh, are still alive, right? So it's not uh, about physical life, it's finding spiritual life, eternal life, life with God and his people that starts now and goes on forever. But Jesus is this light, the light of the world. And then in verses 5 and 9, John tells us three characteristics of Jesus' light. So the first characteristic is there in verse 5, uh, Jesus is a victorious light. I'll take a look there. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. 
And as some of you might see in your kind of translation of the Bible, there's a little footnote there that says, well, that word overcome can sometimes mean understood or recognised. Uh, and that kind of fits a little bit with the verses that follow that are all about how people respond to, to Jesus' light. And we're going to get on to that. But, but I don't think that's what John's, the point that John's making here. I kind of agree with the NIV that's translated it as overcome. That's the usual meaning of this word. Right, it normally means to win or to attain or to grab hold of something. But right, it fits better with the meaning. And I think it fits better with the context here. Right, if you look back to verses 1 to 4, remember we've got those words in the beginning, uh, which take us back to the very start of the Bible, the book of Genesis, uh, in Genesis chapter 1, uh, which says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. So that the context, when we get to verse 5, is the creation of the physical world. And so the darkness that John's speaking about uh, is, first of all, physical darkness. So if you look back at, or if you look at, later on, you might want to look up Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. Uh, this is what uh, the writer says. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. Right, notice that. Well, when there's this thick darkness kind of covering the entire planet, God speaks in the power of his spirit, and there's no struggle between the light and darkness. Right, the light just drives out the darkness, defeats the darkness, overcomes the darkness. The light is victorious over the darkness. And that's what John's saying at the start of his gospel. Jesus is the light of the world. God has spoken fully and finally in Jesus, the word of God, the ultimate revelation of God. And the light of Jesus drives out the darkness in this world. And the darkness that we see in John's gospel isn't just physical darkness. A darkness that has a kind of moral quality. It's spiritual darkness. It's John's way of saying that this world we live in is just not as it should be. It's a horribly dark place. A place where people fail to give God the honour and love and respect that he deserves and, they, and we fail to give one another the honour and love and respect that, that everyone deserves. In fact, often we do horribly unjust and evil and violent and, and even abusive things to one another. The world we live in is a dark place. And sometimes, if you think long enough about it, it can feel like that darkness is overwhelming. It can feel like the darkness is going to win. John says no. Jesus is the light of the world. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus' light drives out the darkness, defeats the darkness, overcomes the darkness. He's a victorious light. A second, he's the true light. So look in verse 9. Uh, the true light, John says, uh, that gives light to everyone uh, was coming into the world. The true light. The genuine light. The real light. Uh, as opposed to fake lights. Phony lights, lights that are really just cheap imitations of Jesus. What John knows that those lights exist. The world we live in is full of fake lights. 
uh, I don't know what you can think of, but, but that essentially these are people or things uh, that appear to be light in the darkness of the world. Uh, they promise life and freedom and contentment and satisfaction. Uh, the only question is, do they deliver on those things? Uh, maybe money's an example, perhaps a bit cliched, right? But, but uh, it's a good place to start. What money promises, uh, it sort of acts as, as if it's the light that we all need in the darkness of the world. It, it promises security and status and comfort and approval. Uh, but we soon discover that, that, that its promises are horribly fragile and fleeting, insecure. And just ask people who've lost their job during COVID or their whole business or all their savings. Right, money is a fake light. Promises lots, but in light of eternity delivers little. The world's full of fake lights. Uh, another one might be career success. Right, it's a wonderful thing to seek to be as good as you can possibly be in your chosen career path. It's a great thing. Don't, don't get me wrong. But the reality is career success is a fake light. What are you going to do at retirement or when you can't do your career anymore? What do you do when you're not as successful as you think you should be? And there's always going to be someone who's more successful than you are. But career success is not a true light to build your life around. It's a great thing. But it's not Jesus, the light of the world. Or maybe having a family or children is a similar sort of idea, right? Having kids is a wonderful thing, and sometimes uh, you hear parents say, oh, my children just light up my life. They're the light of the world, or my world. You don't always feel like that as a parent, but, uh, but you know, sometimes you feel like that. And it is true that, that kids bring real joy and fun and delight into our lives, so I'm not denying that. Oh, but they're not the light of the world, are they? We can't look at them as, as substitute Jesuses that are going to save us and, and bring light into the darkness. If you do, you'll put way too much pressure on them. Well, you'll either put way too much pressure on them because they're not measuring up as the light of the world and it's their fault, or you'll put way too much pressure on yourself because your kids aren't measuring up as the light of the world and it's your fault, right? If only you'd been a better parent, they would have been the light of the world. Right? The world we live in is full of fake lights. Lights that promise lots, but in the end deliver little. John says, Jesus is the true light. He's the one to build your life around. He's the one who promises life and freedom and joy and satisfaction. And he delivers on that promise in spades, abundantly, overwhelmingly, not just today, but for eternity. Right, Jesus is the victorious light, the true light. Third, he's the universal light. I notice that in verse 5, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. It's a bit strange. What does John mean when he says uh, the true light of Jesus gives light to everyone? Uh, some people read that and say, well, John, he must be saying that everyone is going to accept Jesus' light. I don't think so, though. In the verses that follow, verses 10 and 11, we'll look at them in a second, but John is at great pains to say that the default response of human beings to Jesus' light is to run away from it, 
is to reject him. I think what John's speaking about here is not a universal acceptance of Jesus' light, but a universal awareness of Jesus' light. Right? Jesus' light shines on everyone. I've got my torch here somewhere. Here it is. Uh, you guys know that I have this uh, vision impairment, which means uh, when I go out at night time in particular, I need a pretty high-powered torch. Uh, this is it. I'll try not to shine it. But, you know, like it's pretty high-powered. In this light, you can't see it. It's got a pretty big range. But even this torch doesn't reach everywhere, does it? That The light of this torch reaches certain points and then there's darkness. It doesn't touch every part of the planet. It doesn't touch every person on the planet. John's saying Jesus' light is different. Jesus' light is universal in the sense that it reaches everyone. It touches everyone. So that on the last day, when everyone has to front up before Jesus, absolutely no one will say, oh, Jesus, I had no idea you were the light of the world. No, no, no. Jesus will reveal himself. He will be known to everyone so that on the last day, uh, to put it in other words, Philippians chapter 2, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. There'll be no doubt that who is Lord, who is the light of the world. What is God the Father doing through Jesus, his son? John says he's revealing his light to the world, his true light, his victorious light, his universal light. Uh, How does humanity, a dark world, respond to Jesus' light? Well, I think we see in verses 10 and 11 in particular uh, that a dark world, uh, for the most part, responds to Jesus' light by rejecting his light and fleeing from his light. I take, take a look there in verse 10. Oh, I, I'd summarise this as, the world that Jesus made did not recognise him. Read verse 10. Uh, he was uh, in the world, and though the world was made through him, uh, the world did not recognise him. Uh, That word world is a pretty important word in John's Gospel, very important. We're going to come back and back to it uh, as we work our way through the Gospel. Uh, Sometimes the word world simply is referring to this physical world in which we live in. Uh, That's partly what's going on here, isn't it? Uh, Though the world was made through him. That's clearly talking about the heavens and the earth that John referenced back in verse 3. Remember John said, all things were made through him. Without him, nothing has been made that has been made. So there is a sense in which John's saying uh, Jesus was in the world, the physical world. Uh, But the word world in John's gospel doesn't just mean the physical world. It also means the spiritual world in the sense of the the whole system, the whole society that is created by sinful human beings as we live our lives in opposition to God. Uh, The whole thing together John calls the world, as opposed to God's kingdom. So what's John saying here? He's saying on one level, yes, Jesus entered into the physical world. But not just that. Jesus entered into the midst of sinful and proud and stubborn and rebellious people like us. That's the message of Christmas. We'll hear more about that on Friday. But Jesus entered into the midst of sinful and proud and rebellious people in the world, people who were made by Jesus and for Jesus, 
And yet they didn't recognise him, John says. They didn't really understand who Jesus was. And so they fled from him, they rejected him. They were a part of having him crucified on a cross. Light of the world by darkness slain. The world Jesus made uh, didn't recognise him. And then in verse 11, uh, we see that the people that Jesus owned, that belonged to him, uh, didn't receive him. You see in verse 11, uh, he came to that which was his own, uh, but his own did not receive him. Uh, that which was his own there, that could uh, refer to all of the universe, right? The heavens and the earth. We've already seen Jesus made all things. Uh, so in a sense, everything belongs to Jesus. Right, maybe that's what John's saying. Jesus entered into the universe. Could be, it's true. I'm not sure that's what he's saying. He could also be saying, well, Jesus entered into humanity in general because every human being is made by Jesus and therefore every human being is his own. Every human being belongs to Jesus. That's also true, but I'm not sure it's exactly what he's saying because what's John's purpose here is trying to help us to see just how messed up the human heart is, just how much we are bent on running away from and rejecting Jesus' light. And the way he shows that is to say even when Jesus came to his own people, the people who belong to him, the people spoken of in the Old Testament as God's treasured possession, the people of Israel, even when he came to them, the people who'd already experienced the word of God. Remember, Jesus is the word. They'd already experienced the word of God. They had it in the law. They had it through Moses. They had it through their priests and their prophets and their kings. And yet even when Jesus came to them, they not only didn't receive him, they rejected him and condemned him and handed him over to be crucified. That's how messed up and dark the human heart is. That's how much people are predisposed to fleeing from Jesus' light and rejecting Jesus' light. Right? Why is that? Why is it that people by default love darkness and flee from and reject Jesus' light? John tells us in a couple of chapters' time. If you've got your Bible open at John chapter 1, you might want to flick on to John chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. John 3, verses 19 and 20. This is the verdict, John says, Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. So first, people flee from Jesus, they reject Jesus because they're afraid that the light of Jesus is going to expose their deeds. That's different, isn't it? Well, when I was a kid, maybe you were the same. Uh, I was like lots of kids, uh, I was a bit afraid of the dark. I remember coming out of my, you know, my parents, uh, I had a, a bedroom and then there was kind of the passageway to, to get down into their bedroom. I don't know when I'd had a, a bad dream or something, whatever it was. Uh, and of course, you had to run through the darkness of the corridor. Did you have this experience as a kid? You, you kind, of, kind of get to the door, you're kind of the threshold of the door, uh, you look both ways and you just sprint you know, to, to get to your parents. Uh, and that's what we do, isn't it? And then when a light comes on, 
What does the light do? It makes you feel comfortable and safe and secure. And John says it's not like that with Jesus. When Jesus' light comes on, people are afraid. They're not comfortable. They feel like the, the, the darkness in their life, in their deeds, is going to be exposed. It's going to be shown for what it is. I've given this illustration before, but it could be a little bit like if you've ever assumed a role, a job, whether it be paid or voluntary, that deep down you knew you were hopelessly underqualified for. But you thought to yourself, I'm just going to take this on and I'm going to fake it until I make it. You know, people won't be able to tell. But as you serve away in this role, you have this sense, this fear, this anxiety, that one day you might be exposed as a big imposter who doesn't really know what they're doing. And if someone turns up in your office or your department or the business who actually does know what they're doing and they start working alongside you, that anxiety just increases. You're afraid that their competence is going to kind of expose just how messed up you are, just how incompetent you are. It's a bit like that with Jesus. Jesus is the only one who's really qualified to be in charge, not just of your life, but of the entire world. Remember who Jesus is. Jesus is the Messiah. God's chosen and promised king, the one who's been appointed to rule over all things. He's really, really good at being in control of things, ruling things, being in charge. But in our darkness, what do we want to do? We want to be in control. We want to be our own little kings and queens. And so when Jesus, the king of kings and lord of lords, draws near to us in his glorious light, we run away from him. We're so afraid that he'll expose our darkness. That's the first thing. People uh, flee from Jesus. They reject Jesus' light because they're afraid of being exposed. But the the second thing John says here is people flee from Jesus and reject his light because they love darkness, because their deeds are evil. In the end... There are certain things that we love doing that we know we shouldn't do, but we want to keep on doing. We love them more than we love Jesus. That's what John's saying. That's his diagnosis of the human race, uh, apart from God's gracious work. By default, the human heart loves doing stuff in darkness, loves doing evil deeds, as John terms it. And I reckon that's true no matter who you are. Or perhaps we read those words and we think people who love darkness and uh, they love darkness because their deeds are evil, uh, we might automatically think of those who uh, perhaps consider themselves to be particularly irreligious, particularly progressive. And maybe they're the rebels who always want to break traditional morals and rules and religion. And they make a real point of following the desires of their heart and wanting to live a life of pleasure and satisfaction apart from God. And we might think to ourselves, that's who John's talking about. They're the people who love darkness. They're worried about their deeds being exposed. It's not me. I'm a good church person. I've got conservative morality. I'm very religious. Except the thing is, 
that John says these words in John 3, verses 19 and 20, right after Jesus has a conversation with a very religious and moral and conservative man who is still in darkness, Nicodemus. He's saying it doesn't matter who you are, very very conservative and religious or, or very progressive and irreligious, everyone, apart from Jesus, loves darkness. And you don't have to look far through church history to see that, do you? People who are on the surface would have professed to be very conservative, very moral, going through the motions of religion, and and yet behind the closed doors of churches, letting dark and evil deeds run rampant. How does this world respond to the light of Jesus? The dark world responds by rejecting and fleeing from Jesus' light. So how does God the Father respond to that? Just kind of hand us over and say, fine, have it your way. Stay in the darkness. Well, no. He's a God of abundant grace and mercy. He's a God, at this time of Christmas, we remember, he's a God who showers us with gifts that we don't deserve. A God who hands out presents. A God who gives us amazing grace. And I think in these verses, we see God showing, God the Father showing us this grace in two main ways. It's those two R's. It's revealing and regenerating. Revealing and regenerating. The first is, uh, God the Father shows us grace uh, in that he reveals the light of Jesus to us by sending along witnesses like John the Baptist. As you see there in verse 6, John says, uh, let me just find uh, the right verse in my notes here. Uh, In verse uh, 6, there there is, uh, there was a man uh, who sent from God whose name was John. Now, we know John's not speaking in the third person. He's not speaking about himself. He's speaking about John the Baptist. That's clear from the verses that follow. And if you want to chat to me about why he doesn't say the John the Baptist, uh, if that's of curious, curiosity to you, then I'm happy to chat about that later on. Uh, but he's clearly speaking about John the Baptist. There was a man sent from God whose name, from, uh, his name was John. And then in verse 7, uh, he says that John came as a witness to testify concerning that light, the light of Jesus. Now, I can't quite see if there's anyone here who's a lawyer or who's studying law, uh, but maybe you get a bit excited at this point uh, because this is courtroom language, isn't it? All right? just, just as witnesses enter a courtroom to testify to the truth of a particular case, that they provide their evidence, John's saying that that's what John the Baptist is doing. He's entering the scene Uh, to testify, to act as a witness who's providing evidence in a particular case. In particular, the case that Jesus is the light, the light of the world. But not only that, we'll we'll see John's full testimony, his full witness from verse 19 in chapter 1. Ben Drew's going to preach on that in the new year. Uh, John also says Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Uh, But here his testimony is Jesus is the light of the world. And what's John's aim in his testimony? Look at the end of verse 7. His aim is not that people would believe in him, but that they would believe in Jesus. Remember John the Apostle's purpose in his gospel. He wants people to believe 
in Jesus, to find life through believing in Jesus. That was John the Baptist's purpose. And not to gather a following for himself, believers for himself, but believers in Jesus. And that's because of verse 8. Look at verse 8. Through him people might believe he himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. I will see this uh, very clearly later in John's Gospel. Uh, But John the Baptist was very, very clear on his role in God's plans and purposes. On his place in God's plans and purposes. He knew that Jesus was the light and not him. And that he just came as someone not to say, look at me, look at me, look at me. Say, look at Jesus, look at Jesus, look at Jesus. That was John's ministry, constantly pointing to Jesus. He's the light, not me. Uh, Incidentally, this is something that uh, if you're in Christian leadership, you ought to think about. I've been thinking about it this week. Because occasionally you'll come across a leader who seems to have an overinflated sense of their place in God's plans and purposes. They seem to think they've got a special gift, special insight, special experience that that kind of makes them, they probably wouldn't say this, but you just get the sense that they think that they just might be the light of the world. And that if only people believed in them and listened to them and followed everything that they say, their lives and the whole world would be a much better place because the light of their witness would spread to everyone. And John says, no, that's not Christian leadership. A Christian leadership isn't look at me, look at me. It's look at Jesus, look at Jesus. Get out of the way so that people can see who Jesus is. Don't distract them by the fake light of yourself, but just point people to him. This is God the Father's amazing grace in revealing Jesus' light to us by sending along witnesses like John the Baptist. I say like John the Baptist because John the Baptist is just the, the first of many witnesses in John's Gospel. Heaps of people pointing people towards Jesus, saying, look at Jesus, look at Jesus, believe in him. And we've seen recently in the book of Acts, haven't we, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, that every Christian is supposed to be a witness for Jesus, pointing people to Jesus. So there's a sense in which you guys are experiencing God's grace today. Not because there's something particularly special about me. I've just said, I'm clear, I'm not the light of the world. But I did come here today praying that God would help me to point you to Jesus, who is the light of the world. And that is an expression of God's grace. To have a witness of Jesus standing in front of you saying, look at Jesus, believe in him, find life in knowing him. That's God's amazing grace to reveal the light of Jesus, his son, to us by sending along witnesses like John the Baptist. And a second expression of God's grace we see in this passage is regenerating our hearts that we've already seen love darkness by sending the person of his spirit. And we see this in verses 12 and 13. Let me just flick my page over. John starts in verse 12 saying, Yet uh, to all who did receive him, uh, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. 
Uh, notice that word, receive. All right, well, we all know, I mean, Santa, I know we're told that Santa has his list of those who are naughty and nice, and only those on the nice list get presents. Uh, but I've had plenty of Christmases, and I've seen plenty of naughty people get gifts. Right? They're like, we know that even if you're not that good, sometimes you can still receive a gift. And John's saying that's right at the heart of Christianity. That right there, the naughty people, the bad people, the people who don't have their lives together, uh, can still receive Jesus. Because Christianity is not about a ladder to climb up to God, but a gift to receive from God. You don't have to climb a ladder up to God, but because in Jesus, God's already come down to earth. And all you have to do is receive him. Receive him as a gift. It's not about saying, you know, if I just obey these commands well enough and pray enough and read my Bible enough and serve enough and give enough and maybe just why, maybe I might be good enough for God one day. I might have climbed the ladder well enough. No, no, no. God's come down the ladder and he offers the gift to us in Jesus' son. And he says you can receive it in verse 12. How? By believing in his name. That's not to say, oh, I believe a person by the name of Jesus Christ existed in the first century. No, that's not believing in his name. Believing in his name is believing in the essence of who Jesus is and what he offers. And that Jesus is the Messiah, God's chosen and promised king. That Jesus is the eternal son of God, made flesh. And that Jesus really does offer life in his name. Eternal life. Life that goes on forever. And John says that if you receive Jesus and believe in his name, you'll enjoy the incredible privilege of reveling in life as God's children. See there at the end of verse 12, he gave the right to become children of God. Children of God. How do we become these children of God who can actually enter into the life of God? That's what it means to, to be a child of God, being a part of his family. It means to know God, uh, the Father, as your heavenly Father, to know Jesus, God's Son, as your older brother, to know God, the Holy Spirit, as your constant comforter and guide, to do, kind of just revel in this life. How do we become a child of God? Once again, John says it's a gift that we don't deserve. Look in verse 13. It's a gift. Children of God, uh, John says, children born are not of natural descent. But becoming a child of God isn't being about being born into a particular family, John says. Like, it's not about saying, hey, uh, my parents were Christians. My granddad was a preacher, a pastor. My sister was involved with the Christian Union or was a missionary or whatever it is. Right? It's not about that. It's not about the, the descendants. Oh, my descendants used to be a part of the Presbyterian Church in Scotland. It's not about natural descent, John says. Why do you, you can't earn your way to, into God's family because of your family connections? No, it's not about natural descent. Uh, nor, John says, is it about human decision, which is literally about the will of the flesh, kind of sexual desires he's talking about. Which I think is John saying, now you might want to erase this bad kind of mental image in a second, but I think what he's saying is that you might become the child of your parents because of their sexual desires, but you don't become a child of God because of your parents' sexual desires. 
Right? But we get that, right? You don't automatically enter God's family as a child of God because your parents decided to have a kid. Right? It's not about a human decision, John says. Uh, or it follows it's not about a husband's will, which I think follows on from the human decision or a kind of will of the flesh. But particularly in John's culture, it was really sadly, tragically common for husbands to impose their will on their wives in the bedroom. Now, we know that it's, it's much too common today as well, isn't it? But John's saying... You can't force your way into God's kingdom. You can't earn your way into God's kingdom. Becoming a part of God's kingdom, becoming a part of his family, a child of God, has absolutely nothing to do with who you are and what you've done. It's a wonderful gift from God. A gift that John describes at the end of verse 13 as being born of God. So what does that mean, to be born of God? It's where I'm using this word, regenerate. Now, some people go, oh, that's just a big theological word. Why do you bother using it? I'm sure some of you might think that. But I actually don't think it's that hard to understand, right? Because it actually just means what it sounds like. Regenerate. Like you could say, relearn something. It's something that you've learned before and you've got to relearn it. Right? This is regenerate. It's saying that every human being on the planet has already been generated once by their biological parents. Right? We've been generated once. But John's saying that didn't work in terms of creating human beings that would love Jesus' light. That only creates human beings who love darkness and flee from Jesus' light and reject Jesus' light. So what does God the Father have to do? He has to regenerate us. He has to give us new birth, spiritual birth, change our hearts, transform our hearts so that we have hearts that love Jesus, not our deeds of darkness. Hearts that delight in coming into Jesus' light. Delight in believing in Jesus, in trusting ourselves to him so that we might have the right, at the end of verse 12, to become children of God. What's God the Father doing through Jesus, his son? I want to say he's being the best Father Christmas ever. Like, don't you know, get caught up in Santa. These are the ultimate gifts. God the Father showering us with gifts that we don't deserve. Revealing the light of Jesus, his son, to us. Regenerating our hearts, giving us new spiritual life that we would love Jesus, God's light, rather than darkness, and that we would be welcomed into God's family as his children, knowing the limitless love of God the Father, the abundant grace and mercy of Jesus God's Son, and the constant comfort and guidance of God the Spirit. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this, your word. Uh, we ask that this Christmas you would help us to focus on the most important gifts of your abundant grace and mercy to us in Jesus. We thank you, Father, for Jesus, who is indeed the light of the world. And we pray, Father, that we, by the power of your spirit, would receive him and accept him, and in so doing, find life in his name and revel in life as your children. We pray in his name and for his glory. Amen.